Next on Book TV's Afterwards, Reniqua Allen examines whether the American dream is attainable today. She's interviewed by Danielle Belton, editor-in-chief of The Root. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Hi, Reniqua. Hey, Danielle. How are you today? I am awesome. How are you? Good, good. It's published day, so it's I know, an exciting day, and you have an amazing book. It was all a dream, based off an amazing song lyric. It's, it's so hard for me to say the title of the book without like, just going into the lyrics of Juicy. <laughs> of course. I want to do it so badly. But um, the main theme of your book, it seems, is all about the American dream and how this dream has become a dream deferred for many black millennials and how they're coping with it. Can you tell me just a little bit about um, why the American dream has become something of a dream deferred for black millennials? Yeah, I mean, I think that for so long, you know, young black people growing up, particularly young black people like myself, grew up with this idea that you can be anything, you can do anything. At least that's what we were told as kids. Um, you know, I grew up, most of the millennials grew up in the post-civil rights moment. Um, we saw black people on television. There were black folks, you know, uh, being mayors and governors. Jesse Jackson was running for president. Um, it was a time, Oprah was on television, right? Like, so it was a time where it seemed like things were possible. There were stumbles, of course, right? There was like Rodney King. Um, in my own community, a young man was shot by a police officer. Um, but largely, I think it, it was a time where things seemed like they were looking up for black people and that the American dream maybe was possible. Um, you know, my parents and I think our parents were the first real generation to benefit from things like um, affirmative action. They were benefiting from the civil rights legislation of the 60s. Many were owning homes, entering corporate America in higher rates um, than ever. And, and really things started to seem like they were looking up. It felt, I think like the American dream was potentially possible for black America, um, probably, you know, for the first time in, in, in many, many years. And then it just seemed like, you know, it just all fell apart. Um, Barack Obama got nominated for president, of course. And then, you know, our political climate has totally changed. Um, so, you know, I think for me, it was the idea that you know, the American dream maybe is possible for black Americans, and maybe it wasn't created for us, you know, this idea that you can do better than your parents if you just work hard enough. It doesn't matter your lot in life. But, you know, it it just, it doesn't seem like that's actually the reality, even now. And I think that's a really profoundly disappointing thing, at least for me. Um, and then I'll just say one more thing about the title. You know, for me, growing up listening to to rap and to hip-hop, Again, it was another it was another moment where it felt like things were possible. Um, rappers, whether you like it or, you know or not, a lot of people don't. But they were flossing, they were out there throwing around dollar signs. You know, a kid from Bed Stuy, which is not the Bed Stuy today at all, at all, <laughs> at all. It's totally different. But you know, a kid from Bed Stuy could could turn into this rapper, at, you know, in his early twenties. Um, and the world would listen. Like, that was a tremendous thing for me to see Jay-Z on, you know, yachts. It felt like dreams could be realized. And then it didn't. And that's, that's hard. That was hard for me to deal with. And that's kind of why I set out to write this book. Well, you touch on upward mobility, which is this idea that, like you said, in the American dream, that we can do better than our parents have done before us. And so... What I found fascinating in your book where you kind of outlined that even though the American dream in many respects was not made for African-Americans in mind, more African-Americans ever seem to still believe in it, especially black millennials. Why do you think there's still this belief in that I'm going to obtain this upward mobility that's actually quite difficult, especially if you don't have generational wealth, which many blacks don't? So can you just elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, that was like the craziest thing to me. Like, you know, seeing like young white millennials the people that thought that they had actually attained the dream the most, they, like, didn't believe in the American dream as much. But here you have these young black millennials, more than any other group, more than um, Latino or more than Asian millennials, they had hope and faith. And I don't know really why. I think 
the black community at large, and I want to include like the entire diaspora, um, it's a pretty hopeful community. The one thing that constantly also sticks out about black millennials that are unique is that they're highly religious um, or spiritual. I mean, there might, I think there is a sense of hope in the black community that is a, just a continuous thread. But I mean, I kind of can understand why. Things have been so profoundly bad for the black community since we were brought here, basically. I mean, you know, folks immigrated as well, but things are pretty bad for the black community. We haven't gotten the same treatment. I mean, you could just see how they treated the first black president. Um, things have not been equal. It's, wealth is disastrous for us. So I think that we don't have much more than hope. I mean, that's the only kind of explanation, that we have to have something to hold on to, else we'll just kind of shrivel up and die. <laughs> Maybe that's like being dramatic. But, you know, I think hope is this profound way. It's a survival skill. It's a coping mechanism because there is so little, really, really, that um, to hold on to sometimes. Now, speaking of that hope, one story that kind of stood, stood out to me in the book um, was that of a young man that had over $100,000 in student loan debt. Mm -hmm. Now, I am in the minority. I was very fortunate in that I did not have student loan debt when I finished college. Lucky but for you. the, I know, Lucky which you. made a huge <laughs> difference in my life. Um, I, I can't say enough, like, like, that gave me a head start that so many people of, you know, of our generation have not had. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you kind of touch on in the book where college might not be the ideal path, even though it's been sold to us as black people, education is our way out when, in the case for many millennials, this debt has become an anchor? Yeah, it's, I mean, and this is a problem that, isn't particularly unique to black millennials, but black millennials, I think, feel it more because we have that less historical wealth. We have less of that cushion to fall back on. And then when we do get jobs, we make less money. Um, I really consistently questioned um, education in this book, particularly college education, because I saw so many young black millennials having college as a goal and just failing and falling behind in student debt just made their lives absolutely miserable. And, and more often than not, they entered college, but they weren't able to finish. And black millennials also um, are one of the largest groups that actually um, start college, but like I said, but don't finish. Um, or, you know, they don't go to the school they want to because of um, financial reasons. So it really impacts young black people. And I think that the America, and I didn't grow up in this America, but the America of, I will say, our parents' generation um, had a different reality. They didn't have to go to college. You know, college, I mean, a, a really, a small percentage amount of, a small amount of Americans actually, you know, go to college and finish it. And I think that we don't understand that as a people. Um, and you shouldn't have to go to college to have a happy life, to have health care and kind of your basic necessities. Um, I think a generation ago, you could, you know, go out and get a job in a factory. Um, you could, you know, have send your kids to college. You could take vacation once a year. You could buy a home. And that's not possible anymore. And, you know, kind of... And everyone's brain doesn't think that way. We all don't have to be, you know, some kind of intellectuals that need degrees. Um, and so, I don't know, I've really been, been questioning college is the gold. And I don't know necessarily because more jobs than ever actually do require degrees, but um, people of color are largely not always getting uh, some of those jobs. So, yeah, it seems like college is a really tough decision um, for many people. Um, it feels accessible in some ways more than ever for young people of color, but then inaccessible because they're taking on the student debt, their jobs in the end aren't paying off. And I don't, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I just don't think that a college degree has to be the answer to mobility, upward, to moving upward mobility. Um, and, and that's what it seems, that's all it seems that the older generation is telling us, is pot, you know, that's our way up. And it seems like there should be multiple avenues to, to moving up, so to speak. And no, I, exactly. And it's just like, I didn't know that not going to college was an option. And like many right. black children who grew up with parents who had college degrees, 
and saw the opportunities they were able to afford for themselves because of, of the fact they went to uh, colleges or they went to historically black colleges and universities. And so they really put that pressure on their kids, like this is the way out, this is where you're gonna do better than me, this is where you're going to really experience uh, this upward mobility that has escaped us for generations. But then you reference in your book, you look back to the Bush administration where all that is wiped out in the housing crisis. Uh, much of the generation, what little wealth our parents and grandparents were able to obtain was lost in that housing crisis. And uh, you write quite a bit about, you have a whole section just about this dream of home ownership. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit on the black millennial approach to this uh, housing crisis that affects us all? And it's really prevalent here in New York City. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, black millennials have some of the lowest rates of home ownership, um, which is just upsetting in itself. And I know everyone will say millennials, you know, aren't buying homes. But you look at the numbers for white millennials, and particularly as they age, right? And, and they are buying homes. They're kind of, you know, completing that dream. They're just doing later, later in life, um, even though it's, it is difficult, particularly in these big cities. Um, I think that black millennials, I mean, the thing that I heard the most were there were lots of folks that ended up homeless with their parents, um, just tremendous amount of people um, who saw their parents um, just completely wiped out um, by the housing crisis. So that was like a really big theme for a number of the millennials in my book, and that it soured their, their thoughts on ownership. Um, I have a different experience with home ownership. For me, that was like a really important and vital part uh, to me coming of age and probably totally misguided. I'm on the older side of the millennial generation. And so, you know, 2005, that was kind of before the housing crisis. So I didn't, ex I, you know, I didn't see a crash. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, my mom had a house. A lot of my family owned homes. So that kind of wasn't my burden growing up. We always had homes. Homes were expected as much as a college degree. But I was totally misguided. And I think it was this idea of the ownership society that George Bush was touting. But this idea, when you look at the American dream, that home ownership is kind of fundamental to being an American. It is a fundamental part of the American dream. And I think black folks buy into that largely as well. And I don't know why I bought into that idea so much of like, I need to own this home. I need to be an American. I need to kind of prove some worth. I mean, I, that may be, obviously, I think it, looking back, that was a very misguided sentiment. But I wanted to feel like I was a part of the society, that I was doing something. So I bought a home in, in 2005. Not the right time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And how's that, how's that been for you? And so that did not work out. <laughs> um, you know, it, yeah. it, and for reasons that one, you know, I don't want to say that I was totally financially misguided. I was not. I was told I got an adjustable rate that so many people got. I had really great credit. I was making $28,000 a year when I bought the home. Um, it was a condo, a one-bedroom condo in the suburbs of New Jersey. But... I also knew my income was going to increase soon. I was like a production assistant, for, and I don't know how much you know about the television world, but you know you start out pretty low, and your salaries jump pretty pretty quickly uh, once you put a few years in. And that turned out the case for me. Um, I doubled my income, and, and then it, it rose from there. But the thing that was hard for me, so two things. One thing that was significant was that I bought in this neighborhood of Inglewood, New Jersey, on the East Hill, which was like the neighborhood African-Americans were locked out of. I bought in the community that I grew up in, but I bought it on the white side of town, um, the side of town where my mom was basically, you know, arrested, or not arrested, um, but pulled over by police officers in the 60s. It was an area that was known to be not friendly for blacks, and they certainly didn't buy uh, in that area in the 50s and 60s. They bought in the area that I grew up in, and it meant something to me to be able to move um, to the East Hill of Inglewood. That was a special moment. And I, maybe that, too, was misguided. I, I still kind of struggle with why I bought there. Some of it is I think that property values were better, but I chose to buy in this neighborhood. So that was one thing. And that in itself also felt like an accomplishment for me and for my family. It felt like 
we had arrived in some way. In addition to home ownership, it was also the area that I chose. But then the other problem, or the, the thing that was frustrating with me owning a home, um, was that a couple of years I, I got out of that adjustable loan, was making you know more than enough money, um, refinanced, got into a conventional loan. But a few years after that, I got a letter saying that I might have been targeted uh, by my mortgage company because of my race. Um, and that was a hard thing for me. That felt like a failure more than anything else in relation to home ownership. It just felt like an absolute failure. It felt like the American dream, whatever it was, had totally failed me. And it was tough. It was oh, really I can hard. imagine. What you're talking about made me think of something you mentioned in the book called The Trap, that basically American society do the institutionalized racism, racism both overt and covert, racism that just pops up when you least expect it and when you're expecting it at all times is the trap because the idea that this dream isn't necessarily meant for us. And so there's all these unseen prep, you know, ways that you could fail or fall or stumble. And so you outline so many interesting stories of people who were bright students but somehow ended up in prison, mm -hmm. um, who had great opportunities but end up, you know, trying to find alternative means, whether it's the street or sex work or whatever, in order to give their peace of the American dream. Can you speak a little bit about the trap? Oh, man, it's hard. I mean, that's the thing. I think that there's less room for failure. There's less room for screwing up if you're young in black America. And it doesn't matter what area you're in. It could be, you know, sex work. It could be corporate America. It could be, you know, actors and actresses in Hollywood. You, it is clear to me that you have to do everything almost perfectly. And that is just a frustrating space to be in that you, you know, if you don't, then you get caught up in this cycle where you can't get out of it and you're kind of, you know, repeating and repeating and failing and trying to claw your way out and it's impossible. I mean, the one real story that sticks out is this young man who got arrested um, in the Bronx for riding a, a bike. It's some ridiculous arrest. He ended up with a ticket and a court date, was thrown into Rikers for eight days, didn't have $500, which is a lot of money for some yeah. people, um, to bail himself out. Uh, got bailed out by a nonprofit called the Dream, the, the, the Defenders, the Bronx uh, Defenders, um, a great group, and um, waited and waited and waited for court date after court date. They got pushed back. In the meantime, he had eight days out of his job, so he got fired. Of course. And, yeah, he, and then after that, you know, he tried to get a job, but now on his record, it's a felony, you know, that's listed. And it's listed as, you know, he's still waiting for a court date, but it's still an open case. And that, who wants to hire a young black man with this open court, you know, case, this felony? He was never given the benefit of the doubt. And tried to, you know, for years to kind of figure out and piece together his life. Turns out he didn't do it and everything got wiped off his record. But it was two years of him being, you know, set back from life, struggling to uh, feed his child. And it really is heartbreaking to me. It shows how you can completely be encouraged to either one, he could have taken a, a plea for something he didn't do just to get out, or he could have turned to some kind of, you know, illicit activities, which so many people do. Because what else do you do if, you know, all the other legal means have kind of turned their backs on you? And it's really a frustrating place. And I see it in story after story, whatever it is, that this generation, I think, is set up in some ways for failure. And, and like many generations of the past, I think the hard thing for us is that, you know, you do so with the backdrop of Barack Obama being president or Lena Waithe or Issa Rae. And there's so much black success, but we don't really realize how much of an anomaly that still is, considering, you know, we've been here for like 400 years. Well, I think a lot of people, because they can see it, it feels so tangible. You feel like you should be able to touch it and reach out and grasp it. It's like, you know, Issa Rae started out with her web series. You know, now she's on HBO and she's a cover girl. You know, you see these, you see this upward mobility, you see these examples of success, and you think, why not me? Why can't this happen for me? Tell us a bit about why the reasons why this is kind of like an illogical way to go about it, like looking at these few snippets of success 
and thinking that there's going to be a direct path to that type of success. They're so, there's such an anomaly, you know, like, you know, Issa Rae, I think, worked so hard um, to get to where she is, but there should be way more Issa Rays out there than there are, and they're simply not. Um, power, who can, you know, a lot of times we don't have access to the studios. I mean, you see all these faces, or I shouldn't say all, you see some, yes. you know, uh, faces out here, but when you look at the numbers, particularly in Hollywood, I was, I was shocked by this, of who actually controls television and film, it's something like, you know, 93 or 94% of studio executives that's in film and television are white. Like, that is unbelievable to me in this country. That is not reflective of what the society looks like. You know, and we're not even talking about other people of color. This is white folks, um, and largely white men, I should say. And so I think that they have a hard time. You know, people have a hard time. I think people like stories that they can see themselves in. And it might be harder to do if you are a white executive to see, you know, yourself reflected into the stories of these brown folks. They're there. Um, if you aren't familiar with this folk, these folks, these, these people um, of color and their lives and their communities, I think it's harder for you to relate. People like stories that they can relate to. And they, Hollywood is just horrible, horrible, horrible at that. Like, I can't stress it enough. And it's, just unbelievable. Like, I mean, the thing that I read, and I know this is like, you know, people love to talk about Lena Dunham as like the face of millennials. Obviously, privileged, what have you. But I mean, I read this anecdote that she wrote a one-page pitch to HBO for her series Girls. Now, granted, she had a movie that, mm-hmm. that she did before. Um, but a one-page pitch, I, I just cannot, fundamentally can't imagine a young black kid getting away. And she said it was not a great pitch. She said it was, like, half-written. And I just can't imagine a young... I can't imagine an Issa Rae doing that, even now, probably, um, to HBO. We don't have the benefit of the doubt um, that I think a lot of young white people do. I think we can't go into a room with a crumbled-up, you know, hoodie on like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, if we get in because we don't get shot, you know, the hoodie on anyway. But um, we don't get that benefit of the doubt. And I think that's a thing that is frustrating, um, particularly when it seems attainable. We just have to be so on point all the time. And even when we are on point, sometimes that still doesn't help. Um, so I think that hopefully things are starting to change, that there are more women, women of color in general, more black people in positions of power. But it's still really hard, I think, because we just aren't there to make the hiring decisions. I mean, it's one thing to have a black face um, on television or in the movies, but, you know, it's great to have Black Panther in the theaters. I loved it. Like, it was fantastic. But who are those studio executives greenlighting those projects? Those are still not largely people that look like me. Well, one thing, when you brought up Lena Dunham, and this is no pun intended or no shade, (laughs) but I want to talk a bit about what you mentioned in your book about white mediocrity, where basically, as you said, she just turned in like a one-page pitch, which she admit wasn't particularly well-written. She'd only done one other film before this. Her parents both were artists. She had lots of advantages going for her uh, one way or the other. And people often argue about, you know, the breadth of her talent. But what you were just saying about how, you know, black people often have to be exemplary. It's not just good enough just to kind of just show up. And I have often said that what's going to be the true definition of equality in this country is when mediocre black people can be just as successful as mediocre white people can. Because as you said, not everybody can go to college. Not everybody can be this bright, shining star. Can you speak a little bit about uh, that you know, particular issue? I just want to see a black Donald Trump like, be president. Like, I <laughs> really do. I want, you know, because I mean, Barack Obama, you know, take his politics aside, just, it, he's hard to live up to. Like that, you know... I feel like, you know, it's a gold standard. Like, yes, you can be president. Just look at Barack Obama. But, like, I mean, it's... Yeah, all you have to do is go to an Ivy League school. <laughs> right. Have the know. perfect kids, you know, like a wonderful <laughs> wife. Just the perfect trajectory. And that is hard. <laughs> like, you know, we... You know, Donald Trump, for his failings or, you know, the, the pros, I mean, he 
speaks in a way that is more accessible, that, that, that I think people can relate to, you know, I know he, he's rich and elite, but that is an example of mediocrity to me. Like, that um, I want us to be able to, I mean, he has a, he's messy. His life is messy. He doesn't have the, he's on his third wife. He has baby mom. I, I've never heard anyone call, you know, Melania baby mama. Um, you know, no one's making fun of her body. Um, he routinely misspells things on coffee or whatever, you know, on, on Twitter. Um, he is inarticulate. Um, and even, you know, I don't know anyone like that who's at that level who could be like that in African-American, even Clarence Thomas, right? Like, he, who also went to, like, the Ivy Leagues. Like, there is so much of a burden on us to be perfect. And that also is exhausting. Yes. Um, we, I, mean, I want us to be mediocre and thrive. And, and we're definitely not really afforded that opportunity. Maybe there's, like, the one or two that you know, but, but largely we are not afforded that. And I think that's another reason why I decided to, to write this book. I saw people at the same level as me talking about how they got C grades in college or, oh, I was drunk the whole time and I kind of slid in or my dad wrote this like recommendation and that helped get me in. I didn't hear that from the black students and, and young men and, and women that I talked to. They did not have those kind of opportunities. They had to also be damn near perfect. And that, that that's hard. That's a burden on us that I think people... Um, of all generations, of all colors, just don't understand the stress of it all. Well, also speaking on to perfection, um, you talk a bit about relationships in the book and in one of your chapters about love and dating um, for black millennials. And I often feel like when I talk to other young black people that we are looking for things to be perfect in order for us to even like have a relationship and be married. Like, I need to have this type of job. I need to have this type of environment that I'm in. Uh, one of the young men that you uh, interviewed was a young man uh, named Richard, who is uh, who happens to be gay, and talked about how uh, class even came up in his dating life, and how he would talk to people like, you know, who are you out there trying to date? And they'd be like, I'm trying to date somebody who's upper middle class or, or better. Right. Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, I love. I mean, Richard was just an amazing person and really fascinating, and really touched on something that I think we don't talk about a lot um, and talked about the importance of class and upward mobility and relationships and how crucial that is. And I know Richard was in New York City. Mm-hmm. New York is a hard place, you know. Everybody's trying to be at the next level or, you know, date up or, or present a certain way. And most of us can't actually do that. And Richard really talked about how he felt like he wanted to you know, show that he he had made it. Like, uh, he wanted to to really... And, and wanted to have that reflected in his relationship and, and how important class was. But he also talked about how he'd only date, dated poor working-class people um, because they could relate to him more. So I totally understand that um, because the struggles, I think, are sometimes different, um, even though, you know, the end goal might be the same. But... You look at the statistics, and people with two similar incomes, um, similar education levels, uh, often do better than um, particularly black women. Often um, are known to date people with lesser incomes or lesser degrees, um, and that you know the statistics show that sometimes you don't always do as well as if you had. Um, you know, a partner with similar um, income. And so I don't, like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that or the solution is to that because, you know, black relationships, class is, you know, class is important, but there's so many other things that intersect with, you know, um, with why, you know, we want to have these perfect relationships. You know, like, we do get penalized for not having the perfect relationship, yes, but um, there's so many other intersections that, you know, people are in, incarcerated. I mean, that's a big thing. You help out your parents. You have student debt. Um, so, you know, for us to get to that point, to that mental space where you can share your life and and be with somebody else, like, I understand why 
there is a hesitancy. And, and I understand, I think, why class does matter sometimes. Maybe it doesn't matter, but it's something we should be talking about. And it seems really superficial, I think, to some people. Um, but in terms of like, okay, if both of us have bad credit, then how do we apply for an apartment, you know, or, or things like that. Um, that's really like, it's real. And we really need to be able to talk about it. And I really appreciated Richard for his honesty um, about that and the importance of the role that it plays in relationships, because we don't, we don't talk about that. Well, I always joke, I used to live in Washington, D.C. before I came to New York, Me two <laughs> equally horrible places to date. <laughs> as a black woman, and I always felt like we were all trying to date the same five guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, and it created this weird, you know, dynamic between black men and black women, and you, you did speak on the fact that mass incarceration does play a huge role in who's actually available just, you know, in the market, but then speaks back to the trap, where people fall into the trap and they fall right off the dating pool as far as people are concerned, as who's acceptable to go out with. Yeah, it's hard. I mean... So, you know, one of the chapters that I really wanted included was about black professionals. And, yeah, I came to New York City, oh my gosh, you know, some years ago. I'm, I'm from this area, but I came back after being in Washington, D.C. And I think that for many, you know, after, if you go to college and have a degree, you know, a lot of times you want someone who's on that level. And I don't necessarily believe that you have to have a degree to be an intellectual. Um, but sometimes, you know, it just... It just falls into that place and I know for years I wanted that I wanted the person with the degree or and like so few of us actually get that who have a good job or who you know makes you know a certain amount of money or you know a good salary or and then on top of that it's like I, oh, I want him to look away I want him to be like fine or whatever and um you know it just doesn't necessarily happen that way um or you know who has no kids or who has you know you have this image of this perfect relationship and I know for me and also some of the people that I grew up with a lot of us weren't even knowing how to deal with relationships because so many of us did grow up with you know houses with broken relationships or single families and you, there's a lot of like healing in the black community and at the same time as we're trying to like work out our own relationship thing I think there's a pressure if you are those few people the, the, the few the elite they can manage to get a degree, a degree, then you are expected to date someone a certain way. You're not supposed to date the guy who, like, you know, was in jail for, like, 20 years. And that's, like, a flawed, you know, way of thinking, too. So there's perfection in our professional lives, in our financial lives, and then, like, you know, in our personal lives. Like, we have to date the perfect guy um, or woman or, you know, what have you. And that's, like, also another, like, we have to date, and I think particularly with having the Obamas, I think I talk about this too, you know, we're supposed to date a Barack or a Michelle and have that same dynamic that, that they have, which is so wonderful, but also another hard, hard standard to, to really live up to. And I think for so many of us, not realistic, particularly in New York. Everyone's like a model here. I'm not, but everyone is. <laughs> it's a lot of competition. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's, hard. Just, it's just a little hard. Speaking of New York, a lot of people who are of color, particularly black people, are leaving New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in your book about this new migration towards the South, towards the Midwest, towards the West Coast for better opportunities. Can you speak some on that? So for me growing up in suburban New Jersey, right across the river from New York City, it was the end all, be all for me of, of the dream. It's where dreams were made. Jay-Z was there, Biggie was there, um, Little Kim, Foxy Brown. It was the place where you went to make it. And something happened as I came of age. It seemed all of a sudden like, not just music, but music was a big part of it, moved to the South. It felt like the culture, the heart of black culture, and I should say black American, because my dad's from uh, Guyana, from the West Indies, and that, I feel like, still significantly seems like it's rooted in New York. But black culture, black American culture, largely felt like it had moved. Its soul had left New York and, and, and wasn't there and moved to the South. And I think there are so many reasons for that. New York City, Brooklyn, Harlem, I mean, those places are gentrified. They're not what they look like anymore. They're unaffordable uh, for so many black people um, to buy homes in. So I think that's 
part of, you know, that was part of the problem. There's a financial need. But there was also a cultural movement that was really fascinating to me and fascinating uh, about the people that I spoke with in the book that it wasn't necessarily solely economic, though the ability to have more space, for example, was a really big thing for a lot of the millennials in the book, just to roam around, right? Freedom, this idea, I think, that constantly shows up over and over again, the ability to be and not living on top of each other, living in the South, seemed to do that for a lot of people, which makes sense. Like, black Americans are largely country folk. Like, we, you know, did not come from cities. You know, we're just a few decades, I mean, the Great Migration, but, you know, into city life. So we are a country folk. So, you know, some of that I also understood. But largely, it was interesting to me that it was something about being in the South. It was about being around other black people. Um, I think also maybe about reclaiming a space that was ours. It was home, essentially. And it was a reason why so many, I think, young people were drawn to it. Um, and the West in some ways, but, you know, I think the South was really the place that, that captivated for me. And it's because I think I have such a interesting relationship with the South. It's a hard place for me. It's a place of plantations and a place of pain and memory, and it, and it was interesting to talk to people because I'm like, what? I don't, I don't, I don't get it in the same ways that you do. I like, I love DC. It was a great place to be in, but that's like as far south. And I know they will say it's not the south, but that's you know as far south as I have ever lived and that I understood. Um, but people had, they were drawn to it, and and thriving in the south. And I, I could kind of get it after. Um, after going there and, and speaking with them and seeing the connection to home and their roots and their ancestors. It's something I feel like I feel uprooted in New York. My, my people, too, are from the South. They're from Florida. They're from South Carolina. I, don't, I can't say that you know, my ancestors lived there. And I think for so many black people, we can't go back centuries and centuries, black Americans. We can't go back centuries and centuries and say, you know, my great-grandfather came here on the Mayflower. But we can say that, you know, Grandpa, Grandpappy, you know, was lived in this, you know, shack, you know, in North Carolina, so to speak. That's our connection of home. It's, it's the food that I'm comfortable with. It's the weather that I'm comfortable with. So in some ways, I get the South. You know, for me, it's always a place of pain. Even though New York City is equally as terrible in their racial history, you know, stop and frisk happened. Eric Garner happened. So I get why people also want to move away from that. You know, a lot of these egregious um, crimes against black bodies happen in the North, happen in Chicago. Um, but this kind of reclaiming our homeland is something that I think is so profoundly deep and important for young black people in particular, um, who I think maybe feel uprooted and disconnected in so many ways from the rest of America. I wanted to read a bit that you already uh, touched on, your own conflicting relationship towards the South. Uh, over the last few years, I've been trying to find the new South that young black millennials like me are moving to, that black mecca of upwardly mobile black folk that is so prominent in the black imagination. But I can't. I look for it every time I visit the South. I look for it in the stories of Belton, Jasmine, and Kimya. Instead of finding, instead of a feeling of freedom and comfort, all I feel is the weight of a past that doesn't feel so distant. So when I read that, and my family, of course, is from the South as well, like many African-Americans. Um, I, I have some of the same conflicting feelings that you um, have felt visiting the South, yet people are so drawn to it, to the wide open space, to the better weather, to the opportunity, to the community that exists in the South. Yet at the same time, uh, we have, um, you know, the South went overwhelmingly for Trump, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, most African-Americans did not, most black millennials, as you point out in the book, voted overwhelmingly uh, for the Democrats mm -hmm. in the 2016 election. And so I'm wondering, how does one reconcile the South's history and the fact that someone like Trump appeals to the people of the South and that hostility that happens there with the fact that we're from there, our community's there, and the weather is oh so much nicer. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had the answer. You know, the closest thing that I can get to is that, like, election night 2016, 
I was sitting in a bar in Union Square, which is, you know, I think a pretty progressive part of the city, um, you know, the Gramercy area, and there were a bunch of Trump supporters in there that said that they could make America great again. And this was like the heart of New York City. Um, there are Trump supporters here, which shocks me. Yeah. Um, it's, just, it's just like, well, they're everywhere. Um, this place is not so unique. I mean, I still have a funky relationship with the Upper East Side in New York. Or going into Barney's. I was in Bloomingdale's, you know, uh, a few days ago. And I bought these pants from there. And, like, you know, it felt like eyes were on me. And, yes, is some of this my anxiety? Maybe. Is some of this real? I'm sure. You know, Barney's has had incidents uh, where you know, people have, have claimed harassment or, you know, discrimination. New York is hard. It's, it's not so great all the time for, for black Americans. Um, so that's how I reconcile with, I reconcile it in saying everywhere is terrible. There's a slave um, burial ground downtown in New York City that we didn't even know existed for, for decades. Um, it's a hard city um, for black Americans as well. And superficially, I think, because our neighborhoods are super segregated, um, but we still, like, are... We're in spaces oftentimes together. People take the train together. Um, sometimes we even live on the same blocks together with people that are vastly different from us. That it, it feels maybe like we're more integrated than we are. New York, I think, is still one of the segregate, most segregated places in the country. Um, we don't interact with each other. Um, you know, we're in these spaces together, but like whether we interact, like. You know, I think there's, like, a liberal white circle and there's, like, the black Harlem professional circle. Um, and those worlds don't often mix. So we're very segregated here. That's kind of how I, I can kind of reconcile that. And I do think that in the South, they can talk about it more in ways that we don't. Like, we're, like, too good here. Like, everyone, you know, thinks that they're, like, you know, immune to it. And, and I think the South is a bit better about acknowledging that because I think they're racist here, too. <laughs> yeah, I would promise you, yes. I agree. Very segregated. New York, yes, yes. And, you know, it's, you know a, a lot of America is quite segregated. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that the North somehow was better than the South yeah. in terms of race. But as you put out in your book, that's oftentimes not the case at all. Yeah, yeah. The North was terrible at it. Uh, you know, like, even though there were high rates of, like, unionization, for example, something that's seen in something that does positively impact um, African Americans. Um, you know, the, the studies have shown when they're in a union, they get better jobs. However, we were left out of those unions most of the time. And not only were we left out, there was, like, an active movement to keep us out of those unions. Um, yeah, that's a huge thing that boosted tons of then working class families into a middle class um, that we that, that you know black people were largely left out of that we have to to think about and that's something I think is a very northern thing. Housing in the north was particularly I mean redlining you know like I said the neighborhood that I grew up in was a black neighborhood that was the black section of town. That's something that happened right across the river from New York City. Um, so I think I need those reminders. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have a plantation. I didn't grow up on that. Like, you know, there, there's, I think people didn't have slaves here, but it was equally as bad. My relatives couldn't go to certain neighborhoods. They were locked out of certain markets. Uh, and they certainly, you know, were not treated probably much better than, than my relatives in the South, who are doing so well, too, and are thriving and, and seem happier. Maybe it's just cold here. Maybe it does all come down to the weather. <laughs> Yeah, the weather's not helping today, but no, it's not, not at all. Um, so to pivot uh, to um, something that came up in your book around uh, gender and identity uh, with young uh, black millennials, you wrote in your fame chapter about Shamir and artists who got pigeonholed by the press as being post-gender. Like someone even commented, you know, whether or not he was a cross-dresser just because he liked nail polish, which is, you know, patently absurd. Um, out of the 75 black millennials that you, over 75 black millennials that you spoke with for this book, how often did these issues around identity and gender and sexuality kind of come up and how they kind of felt about how people conceptualize it within the millennial generation? It's a good question. Um, 
I think that, you know, the questions around sexuality and, and gender and identity certainly came up. Um, I think for most people, it always, it, sometimes it wasn't a focus. Like, I'm thinking of uh, one of the sex workers that I spoke with, the dominatrix, and, and I think maybe halfway into our conversation, she spoke to me that she identified as queer. It was something that was important, I think, but it wasn't always necessarily the focus. And a lot of times, people were, were trying to kind of unpack the intersections of all their identities. So yes, that might have been a part of who they were, but there was also the race part um, or the class part. And that's kind of where we, we tended to focus a lot. Um, and I also didn't want, I, I specifically, unless we were talking about something like relationships, didn't want that to be a focus of conversation. Though I do think that gender and identity and sexuality definitely um, impact upward mobility. I mean, you know, uh, white, gay men particularly make a lot of money compared to, like, you know, black men who would identify in, in the same way, or queer men or trans folk who really have a hard time even getting jobs or health care. So I don't want to want to downplay that. Um, so, you know, the, those kind of things came up when, when we talked about opportunity um, in particular. Um, but it wasn't, you know, like I didn't, I tried not to particularly stay in that space. With Shamir, who was amazing and great, he talked about like, you know, yes, I am, I'm queer, you know, but that's like not who I am too. I'm also these other things. And I think that was like the important point for me to learn that we don't solely have to be defined by these, you know, one things um, about us. And I, I think Shamir was like a really great example of, of doing that, of acknowledging it. Um, and I think Shamir, though, was interesting because his mom was like very accepting. I think for other people, like Hari, for example, who's, whose family was not as accepting, it played a bigger role in their lives. But I kind of let people decide how much of a role that they wanted that to play in their lives because everyone sees each part of these identities as, as something different. You know, like for me, like race is a really big part, but also being a woman and then the intersection of being a black woman, um, you know, is something important. So I kind of let the way people and the weight of how that identity or their identities impacted them kind of drive the stories. Now, another thing that I found really fascinating is when I think about what my parents' idea of what success is and what white people's idea of what success is and what you talk about in this book about black millennials creating their own definitions of success. Can you speak on that a little? Yeah, I think that we can't necessarily define success in that kind of traditional way that we've done in the past. It may not look like owning a home. It may not look like being in a kind of traditional male woman, being in a marriage together for 50 years. Um, it certainly may not look like being on a job for like 20 years with the same employer. And that's fine. Um, I think for young black millennials, and, and I think for like my parents, um, my mom, I think that you know, success does mean kind of that traditional, you know, you have a job, you go to work, you can provide for your family. I think that's what success looks like. And I think for this generation, what I found was success can mean freedom. It can mean happiness. It can mean doing what you want. It can mean being piss poor, but being able to, you know, get up and blog every day. Oh, my gosh, maybe not <laughs> blog anymore. That's so dated. But, you know, being able to write or, you know, be on Instagram and tell your stories or making, or making you know, web series. Um, I think we're redefining what that looks like. Um, and though I think that, you know, the, the notions of the dream sometimes are similar, but I think it, or the same rather, but I think it's largely rooted in ideas that we've, we need freedom, that we need space to be. We want to be ourselves, and that's where maybe you know sexuality and, 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 and gender take a play, that we don't want to be boxed into this dream that was not for us, that, that we didn't create. We want to make our own dreams. We want to define our own dreams. We want to define our own lives. And I think this generation's really pushing back on that. They're, they're you know, pushing back on, you know, I can be happy in a home. It may not be what I own, but it's a home, and we can define that um, you know, in, in our own 
ways, but it may not be it may not be ownership. For some people, it might be, but. Um, our relationship. I want to be in love and be happy for some people, but it, maybe it doesn't look like marriage. Maybe it means partnering up. Maybe it means, you know, um, being polyamorous, whatever it is. Um, I think that, you know, or maybe someone has a traditional job, but they're freelancing on the side or doing sex work and, and liking it. Um, you know, and nothing's wrong with that. So I think that we're trying to push the boundaries um, and redefine, like, what the American dreams mean. And maybe that's because it's it's been unattainable, maybe because we've seen the embodiment of that. Maybe it is Barack Obama, and we're like, no, you know, most of us can't do that. Um, but, but I think that largely that's what black Americans have done. We have consistently redefined what our dreams are, and I think this generation is, is doing the same. Well, I mean, I feel like that's an important thing for black Americans to do, because as you outline in your book, um, there are so many issues with the standard, you know, belief of what successes, what, what the signifiers of success in American society. Like you mentioned home ownership. You mentioned doing better than your parents. You talked about, um, you know, having this perfect job and this perfect life and how it even bleeds into our personal relationships. Um, how, how, out of the, the people, that, the many people that you spoke to for this book, how were they able to kind of like let go or move beyond the the hold of their parents' dreams, the hold of like what the standard is in America, and kind of like pivot to finding their own happiness. I think they've been forced to. I think it's like survival. I don't think there's any other way. I mean, there was a New York Times article a few months ago um, that said like even middle class black men can't hold on to to the dream. Like it's it's not just a class thing. Um, you know, we know that so many young black men and women are downwardly mobile, uh, particularly of this generation. So part of it, I think, is like there's no other choice um, but to redefine themselves. And I think that's how they pivot. I think they've been forced to pivot, I should say, um, by society that hasn't allowed them to thrive in the way that they either wanted to or that they felt um, that they were expected to. Um, but I also think that this generation, I know we like to use the word woke a lot, um, I also think that what's different is there, there is an understanding um, of black Americans, of a lot of black Americans, that like this maybe wasn't created for us, that this dream isn't ours, that, okay, America is treating us in a certain way, and we know why, and so we're going to have to do something else. Like, this, this, we're not going to take part of that because this was not created for us. This is not meant for us, and that's okay. Let them have their dreams. We're going to do something else. Um, so I think that, you know, it's that kind of wokeness. I mean, it's, see, it's having a black president and seeing Mike Brown laying out there in the sun all day, or Trayvon Martin um, being told that they are less than, uh, seeing young women in the classroom getting, um, you know, assaulted and that being okay, uh, Charlottesville where those folks were gunned down. I mean, I think all these things have forced us to really look at the dream. And I do think, I know it's so cheesy to keep using Barack Obama, um, but I think there is something about seeing him as an embodiment of that dream and the way that played out and what's happened after Barack Obama. I think that's forced us into saying, okay, maybe this actually isn't that dream. Because look at what happens when, when this, you know, so to speak, you know, embodiment of success gets in the White House. Look how he was treated. Look at what happened to the greater world. And now look who's elected president. Um, I think that that has really forced us to take a look to say, what? This is America? Like, I thought we were, I thought there was change and hope, but it's actually the same old America in the past. Like, you know, yes, there's been progress. I don't want to say that there hasn't been, but it's not as much as I think so many of us had put stock into. I mean, this young kid that I spoke to from Texas said, I thought that Barack Obama was going, things were going to be better. And in fact, they're not. And I think that that has forced us to really take a good, hard look at what, what is success. Because if getting to the presidency, you know, if that success isn't, like, that should have been our dream and our goal. Um, I feel like a lot of us saw that is the dream. And yes, you know, it happened and it was good, but he was othered. He was told that he was, like, not American. And that person is now president. So I think that made us, like, you know, say, hmm, hmm. Let's look at this again. 
Let's re-examine. Let's re-examine the Let's whole re-examine thing. This, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. So you mentioned the word woke, mm-hmm. and we have a few I minutes know. left. So I, I wanted to talk about the, the, the wokeness of the black mm-hmm. women. Like there's this there's this, pres- this preconception people have of millennials in general. Yeah. They're not usually differentiating out uh, black millennials. But yeah. when, when they talk about millennials, they talk about them being entitled and selfish and they're sipping lattes and, you know, they're killing everything. Right. That's, the thing, that's the every press story about how millennials are killing marriage, they're killing this, they're killing that. And the reality for what statistically makes up the black millennial is very, very different. Can you speak on uh, what black millennials actually think and believe as opposed in the opposition yeah. to what people think of when they hear the word millennial. Oh man, I mean, I don't think we can kill things. We don't have that much power. <laughs> like, you know, like we can't kill housing. Like when did home ownership rates are like, you know, the same as they were um, for our parents. So we're not killing housing. You know, the ho- housing market's probably like killing us more. You know, America's killing us more. Um, I think the black millennial lives in a profoundly different space. And while... I should say that, you know, some of the think pieces and commentary on the millennial overall, they portray this kind of elite, you know, liberal, white, entitled, educated, overeducated, I I should say, person. And that's not the white millennial population either. And the millennial population is actually largely like people of color. It's not black and white. It's, you know, Asian and Hispanic millennials as well who, who also do differently, like, like, you know, a lot of our experiences are the same, but we're also, like, unique, like the black millennial. And often, like, you know, at the bottom of, of many lists. Um, so how we're unique. I think that, you know, we're different. I mean, there's, like, the criminal justice system that weighs so hard on us. I've seen other millennials of color. The way, I feel like blackness is still at the bottom all the time. Um, which is a frustrating place to be. The way we look, I've heard millennials say, oh, well, you know, I don't know about, you know, getting with this this black person. You know, their hair is a certain way. Or I don't want to live, like, quite in that area. It's a little too far uptown. Right? There are dog whistles that other millennials of color do as well, um, as white millennials. I don't want to just portray them as, like, you know, as, as bad. Um, but I think we do live in different realities. The world sees us in different ways. Whether people like to acknowledge it or not, there is a privilege to being white and sometimes to being another millennial. There's the model minority. It's a privilege. We didn't speak about it much to being maybe like an African because I spoke to a lot of African millennials who are black, but they talk about having a privilege of having immigrant parents and having a different experience and how they're seen um, in America. So I think that there's... You know, there's a difference. We live in different realities, and we need to acknowledge that difference. And I think it's very hard for this generation to see that sometimes, because we are together. Sometimes we are going to the same schools and in the same classrooms, and we're in this interracial relationships, like, right, um, more than ever. Sometimes our parents are, like, of, of different races. But to see how profoundly different the experiences are, I, I think that's just a very hard thing for America to see. Um, in things, you know, just kind of like not the blatant things. I mean, Charlottesville was one thing of seeing people with like, you know, tiki torches, um, you know, shouting in the streets. But I think more than not, it's the more subtle things. It's people questioning who you are, your existence, your humanity. Do you belong here? Um, And that's a hard, hard thing to, to take every day. I think it kills you a little bit, you know, or each time that I've had black men talk about how they have to, when they walk in a store, like take their hoodies down, unbutton themselves so people don't unzip themselves, so people don't see that they're anything. I think those are the subtle differences. Um, it's a freedom of being white that you can just walk around and the world is just your oyster, <laughs> where I think for, for being black, you're taught exactly the opposite. There is a lack of freedom. Yes. Um, and for me, like I think that ultimately is a dream that I would like to see. There is a freedom to being young and black that we don't have, that white millennials have, that they may not even realize they have. So it's not just about student debt. Like, we all have a crappy millennial existence in some ways. But there's other things that really limit us, that really wear on our souls. It's just really hard for us. Well, Renique, well, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed It Was All a Dream. <laughs> thank you so much. It's such an important book, and I'm so excited for you. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> thank you.